If you have your Bibles with you today, please open to the 8th chapter of Romans. We're going to continue our study of the book of Romans. I am preaching from the NIV, so if you have an electronic handheld device, you may want to tune into the NIV. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you today, don't panic. We're going to have all the words for you up on the screen. And by the way, I want to give my thanks to uh, Dick Newman. He is always so willing to help out in any capacity you ask him to help. And he's the guy that puts together the PowerPoints for me for this. So, Dick, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I also want to say, too, I am indebted to Pastor Dave this week. Uh, When I first started looking at this passage about a week, week and a half ago, I was drawn a total blank. Nothing was making sense to me. Nothing was coming together. It was very, very cloudy. I wasn't seeing anything. And I called Pastor Dave kind of trying to beg out of this passage and get him to do something else. And he talked me through it a little bit. He let me know about a new resource I hadn't been aware of. And between his guidance and comforting and the new resource and so on, before I'd even hung up the phone, the ideas were coming. The outline was beginning to form and so on. So thank you, Pastor Dave, for that. Our topic today is suffering. I've titled the uh, sermon, From Groaning to Glory, a biblical look at suffering. Now, I'm sure everyone here and online can relate to suffering. Everyone has suffered to some degree at some point in time. We suffer in many different ways. Sometimes we suffer from sickness, illness, disease. Sometimes we suffer from injuries caused by accidents. We suffer when we grieve the loss of a loved one. We suffer emotionally when relationships are strained or have even failed. Some people suffer from loneliness. Sometimes we suffer from persecution, for standing up for God, for standing up for Jesus, for standing up for what the Bible says, for standing up for our faith. Sometimes we suffer for that. Sometimes we even suffer for those we care about as they go through suffering. And there are many other ways that people suffer. I think everybody would agree with me with this comment. At at times, rather, life can be hard. There's a lot of suffering in this world. Some experience more suffering than others. I'm on the prayer chain here at church that Pastor Dave referred to earlier, and I'm aware of suffering going right right now. It's going on in the lives of some of our members of the church here, And it's going on in the lives of some other people we pray for that aren't even associated with the church. Something that we all share in common is suffering in some way, shape, or form. We either all have suffered at some point, or we are suffering right now, or we will most likely suffer again sometime in the future. And we will probably suffer several times before we get to heaven. The study of this passage may help us gain somewhat of an understanding of suffering. And I intend to provide five takeaways this morning that I hope may offer some form of comfort. But before we get into the actual body of the the sermon, let's take time to go before God and ask for His blessing on this time. Lord, it is good that you have brought us here today into the house of the Lord. It is good that we come to worship. It is good that we come to hear from your word and to gain knowledge and understanding from it so we can alter our lives accordingly. 
Father, I pray that anything that may be competing for our attention right now, that you would just take it right out of the way, set it aside for now. Allow us all to focus totally and completely on the word as it's being shared today. And Father, I pray that through this message this morning, for those who are suffering right now, they would at least sense some kind of direction from you and get some kind of comfort from your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we're starting in Romans chapter 8 with uh, verse 18. Read along with me if you would, or just follow along, I guess. Paul is writing and he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now we're going to go back to verse 18 and kind of break this down a little bit, look at it in a little more detail. There's a phrase right away at the beginning of verse 18. It's called present suffering. And I want to let you know there is actually a debate going on uh, between uh, uh, teachers and preachers and so on as far as what is meant here by present suffering. Some people take a narrow view at this and they limit it to just suffering that, that's caused from persecution that I referred to before. But others include basically any kind of suffering we experience here on earth. And that's the side I'm coming down on because I think when you look at this in context, in the passage where it's at and everything that's included, I think it's more of that second line of including all of our kinds of suffering. So that's how we're going to look at it here. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, the first word he uses there, consider, as it's used here, it refers to reaching a settled conclusion by careful study and reasoning. Paul doesn't reach this conclusion without first giving it a great amount of thought. So what he's saying is that after a great amount of thought, study, and reasoning, I have come to the conclusion that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
In other words, the suffering we experience on earth pales in comparison to the glory we will experience in heaven. Now, understand, Paul is not minimizing or diminishing the way suffering affects us in this life, nor is he saying suffering is insignificant. Paul was well acquainted with suffering. What he is saying is that compared to heaven, from an eternal standpoint, the temporary sufferings we face in this life are not even worth comparing. Now, someone may be tempted to think, but Paul, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know how I've suffered. I think he can relate. He certainly had more than his share. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 24, Paul writes of himself, listen to this, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I was constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have, got, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul knew that of what he spoke. And Paul is not just speculating here. You'll remember that after his conversion, Paul received direct instruction and training from none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus had given him a clear enough understanding about what heaven will be like that Paul could, Paul could make this claim he spoke he speaks, excuse me, with authority. So the first takeaway we're going to see today is that takeaway number one, the suffering we experience on earth pales in comparison to the glory we will experience in heaven. Now back to the end of verse 18. The glory that will be revealed in us. We can tell from the way he writes this that Paul is excited about something and he's looking forward to this future event but we don't quite yet know what it is. The last two words there that he uses, in us, who's he referring to there? Sorry? The church, yes. He's writing in the book of Romans. He's writing to the believers at Rome, the church at Rome. He's writing to believers. So the in us refers to all of us who are believers. And in the next verse, verse 19, we're referred to as the children of God. Here we go, verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Now we see here it's not just Paul, but creation also waits in eager expectation for this future event. When he uses the word when he uses uses the word creation here, it refers to animals, plants, mountains, rivers, plains, seas, the heavenly bodies. And the phrase here, waits in eager expectation, it carries the idea of waiting in great anticipation, but with patience, readiness, preparedness, and continuance until the expected event occurs. Now, what is this future expected event? 
Colossians 3, verse 4 is going to help us. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. In other words, when does He appear? He appears at His second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. So that's this event that Paul, in all of creation, is looking forward to, this future event, the return of Christ. Now here's a question that came into my mind. Why is the creation waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed? We'll look at verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, to get insight into these two verses, I'm going to ask you to keep your finger here in uh, Romans chapter 8. And I want you to turn back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're going to look at some verses in chapter 3. And while you're turning back to Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to summarize what happens in Genesis leading up to the third chapter of Genesis. You'll remember that uh, the very first verse of the whole Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes. You'll remember that in six 24-hour days, God created the entire universe. And He did it by speaking it into existence. Amazing. Spoke it into existence. At the very end of chapter 1 in Genesis, verse 31, it says, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. It was a perfect world to live in. It was flawless in its original state. Then in chapter 2, we get more details, a little more detailed account of what went on during those first six days of creation. And chapter 2 tells us that God himself planted a garden in Eden and made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground that were not only good for food, but pleasing to the eyes. And among them were the tree of life and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Still in chapter 2, God put Adam in this idyllic spot, gave him permission to eat from any tree in the garden with one exception. Genesis 2.17 But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God provides Adam with a very strong warning of what will happen if he eats from that forbidden tree. He was warned ahead of time. And then in verse 18, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. This, by the way, is the first, the first thing we see that is not good. Everything else God had created was good. But he realized it was not good for man to be alone. So he remedies this by creating Eve from one of Adam's ribs. And then the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now we have to go into chapter 3. And I have this pale that always, anytime I hear reference to Genesis chapter 3, this pale just comes over me, this darkness. Because it's where we see the record of the fall. And this is probably the saddest chapter in the whole Bible. We see the fall. We see that both Adam and Eve, after being tempted by the servant, serpent, they eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin enters the world, and get this, along with suffering. They only had one rule to follow. 
but they couldn't do it. Sin changes everything. God's perfect creation is no longer perfect. All of creation becomes cursed because of the fall. And think about it. How tragic is that? How tragic. God provided a perfect place for man to live. And it's been poisoned with sin. You're in Genesis chapter 3. Join me at verse 14. We're going to read, uh, follow along as I read this. Genesis, 3, chap- Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. We see the result of the fall here. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Stop there for a minute. This verse 15 in chapter 3, this is what's known as the proto-evangel. Proto-evangel, it means the first good news. Even here, God is already providing a remedy for the problem with sin. Now verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Here's where we actually see the suffering that's happening now. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Understand, that was not in the original plan. Childbirth was not going to be a painful event. I've kind of often wondered how many women that are going through childbirth with their teeth grit, gritted, gritting, whatever, gritting their teeth saying, thank you, Eve and Adam, for this. It wasn't supposed to be like that. It's not how God had it laid out. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, sometimes people misunderstand that. They think that desire for your husband has to do with a sexual attraction. That's not what's going on here, though. It's more of a, it becomes a competition for leadership in the household. God was placed in charge of the family, excuse me, Adam was placed, was put in charge of the family. It was his responsibility to make sure everything was great with the family. But now we're going to see some of this competition for the head of the household. All part of the sin. Verse 17, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And here we see that all of creation is now cursed. You see it right here. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Now remember that what was, rel- what was a relatively easy task for Adam when he was working the Garden of Eden, and he basically just had to do a little bit of tending and collecting the food, is no longer an easy task. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Again, not originally. The ground, the earth was not going to produce thorns or thistles until after the fall. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Remember God's warning, you will surely die. Death has now entered the world. And pause for just a moment and think about what Adam must have been feeling. Think about the heartache he must have had. I had a perfect existence here. I had an I had an easy life. And because of what we've done, 
he gets the blame because he's the head of the household. But because of what I've done, we've lost that. It's no longer the same. I'm no longer going to be easily collecting food for us to eat. Now I'm going to be working for it all the time. Skip to verse 22 for me, if you would. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, and this is the Trinity talking among themselves, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Do you realize that our physical bodies were originally intended to live forever? Eating the fruit from the tree of life is what would have kept our bodies going forever. But sin changed that. Now, there's a little bit of a residual effect in our bodies. If you, if you cut your finger, depending on how deep it is, the longer it takes to heal, but you cut your finger and you just kind of wash it off and let it go or maybe put a Band-Aid on it. But you notice after a day, it's starting to heal up. Day two, it's healing up more. And eventually, it's healed up altogether. It may leave a scar, not always, but it may leave a scar. But the healing process is still taking place. We still see a little bit of that in our lives. Verse 23, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim. And a cherub is a type of angel. Cherubim is simply plural. Plural for cherub. Plural cherub. Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Man lost his access to the tree of life. And death is what's waiting for him there. Now, God didn't intend for us to have to deal with suffering. We suffer today because of the catastrophic effect of sin's influence on the entire creation. And that leads us to our takeaway number two. In God's original design for the world, there was no suffering. None at all. Now, turn back to Romans chapter 8, if you would. We're going to look at verse 21 again. And we're going to answer that question I asked from before. Why is the creation waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed? Verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. In other words, the effects of the curse. And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation itself is under its own curse and is looking forward to Jesus' appearance at which time it will be renewed and restored. Now, this next short section we're going to look at, we're going to take a brief look at three different kinds of groaning. And the first type of groaning is creation. Verse 22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation has been groaning ever since the fall because of the curse. Here, Creation is personified as a woman in later labor, rather, waiting for the birth of her child. A glorious thing is eventually going to happen, but she first has to endure labor pains to get to that point. Now, the second instance of groaning comes from us, we who are God's children. Verse 23, not only so, not just creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The phrase here, first fruits of the Spirit, I want to read a note from you from the NIV Study Bible. Quote, 
The Christian's possession of the Holy Spirit is not only evidence of his present salvation, but is also a pledge of his future inheritance. And not only a pledge, but also the down payment on that inheritance. Unquote. It is the Holy Spirit that leads us to groan inwardly as we long for that time when we receive our full inheritance as children of God and we trade in these worn-out, sin-marred bodies that are so susceptible to suffering for brand-new, redeemed ones. There is coming a day when believers will be permanently delivered from suffering of any kind. And whether that day happens at our individual deaths or if we stay alive long enough and we experience the rapture where Jesus comes back, and I think the term is he catches up the church and removes it out of the earth, out of the world before the great tribulation. In any event, this is a reliable promise from God, and it is something we can count on. Naturally, it leads to our third takeaway. This era of suffering that we are currently in won't last forever. Now, so far we've looked at a kind of a big picture, long-term view of suffering. What about those who are suffering right now at this moment? Maybe there is some comfort to be had from the remaining portion of this passage for those who are suffering. Skip to verse 26 for me, if you would. We see here that like the creation and we ourselves, the Holy Spirit also groans. Verse 26, A and B. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Stop there. The phrase, in our weakness, meaning that as humans, we have limitations. We have limitations. I like the way John MacArthur explains this. Quoting from him. Because of our imperfect perspectives, finite minds, human frailties, and spiritual limitations, We are not able to pray in absolute consistency with God's will. Many times we are not even aware that spiritual needs exist, much less know how best they should be met. Even the Christian who prays sincerely, faithfully, and regularly cannot possibly know God's purposes concerning all of his own needs or the needs of others for whom he prays. Unquote. Pastor Dave kind of referred to this earlier in the service, too. The last part of verse 26. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit is interceding for you? I sure am, yes. Even when we don't know what to pray, get this. The Holy Spirit is already at work praying for our behalf. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that a tremendous amount of comfort in that? Verse 27, and he who searches our hearts, that's God, God the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what and how to pray for us in accordance with God's will. Now, again, we always want to be careful. We want to do our best when we pray. We want to make sure we're praying for God's purposes. We want to make sure we're praying in God's will. We're asking for things that He would want to
to respond positively to, and just uh, we just want to be careful with that. But there's comfort in knowing that the Holy Spirit isn't going to let anything pass through that is not for our best good, and He's praying for us. Have you ever experienced the times when you were simply unable to pray? Your suffering was so intense that you just didn't have it in you to pray? I've been there before. We see from this passage today that even during these times of distress, the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf and bringing your need before God the Father. And again, there's a great deal of comfort in knowing that. So, takeaway number four. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us and knows exactly what to pray in accordance with God's will. And I want to read a summary. Uh, to summarize what we've covered so far, I want to read a quote from BibleRef.com. It's not Bible Referee, but it's BibleReference.com. Uh, it turns out to be a pretty, pretty great resource. Um, but uh, quoting from them, Paul has revealed in this passage that the life of a Christian on this side of eternity is one of waiting and longing to be with our God while enduring the suffering of this life. We live with a kind of endless groaning to be made whole by the redemption of our bodies. We are not alone, however. God gives His Spirit to everyone who trusts in Christ. Unquote. Now, as I begin to wrap this up, Let's look at one of the favorite verses in the Bible. You may have this printed on a mug in your kitchen at home. It may be hanging on your refrigerator in the form of a magnet. You may have it framed hanging on your wall someplace. But a very popular, one of the favorite verses, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. That's worth reading twice. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, it's easy to misinterpret this verse, so we want to make sure we read and break it down carefully. What this verse is not saying is that everything that happens is good. Not saying that. There are bad things that happen. Can we admit that? But God can even work through the bad things to bring about good. Now, this verse is not dismissing the genuine pain and suffering we experience in this life. They are very real. The Bible recognizes the rightful place of grief, mourning, and sadness. Even when we suffer, God can use that suffering to bring about good in the lives of His children. And as I was working through this this week, I was reminded of a story uh, Jim Dobson told probably 20 years ago. He was still at Focus on the Family, and he shared this time when his son Ryan, at the time of the story, his son Ryan was only three years old, just a tiny little guy. And he got an earache, and they took him to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, we know it's causing the earache. He has an ear infection. But the bad news is to treat it, try to get through this. <laughs> but the bad news is to treat it. I have to take this tool and I have to go into his ear and I have to scrape off that infection off of his eardrum. And it's going to be terribly painful. 
and you have to help me, and you have to hold him still so I don't do any damage. So Dr. Dobson says he took his big six-foot-two-inch frame and wrapped it around his tiny little three-year-old boy, and he locked down on his head so he wouldn't be moving or squirming. And the doctor went in, and he did what he had to do. And he scraped away, and he caused a whole lot of pain for his son. And then he said what the worst part of the whole ordeal was for him, Dr. Dobson, was that when he looked over, he glanced over at the door, and there was a mirror on the back of the door. And his son was looking into that mirror, and he was looking at his dad. And he said, you could just see it in his eyes. Daddy, why are you allowing this guy to cause this pain in my ear? Why are you letting that happen? And, of course, the little guy couldn't understand. He didn't know. But the hearing was saved. They did take care of the infection. The hearing was saved. And ultimately, it was a, a good result. Sometimes we might see what the good was that God brought about. But I suspect that's not always the case. And sometimes we may never know. But that doesn't mean God didn't work it for the good. The verse doesn't say, and we know that in a few things, God works for the good of those who love Him. He didn't say that in some things. He didn't say that in many things. But He said that, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. And one more quote from BibleRef.com. I thought this was pretty neat. It's very short, but... The comfort of this verse is that nothing in life of waiting and suffering is wasted. It is all meaningful for those in Christ, even if that doesn't diminish our pain in the moment. Unquote. I want to make sure I include a caveat here uh, to kind of wrap this up, that this verse is not a promise to, and it doesn't apply to everyone. Who does it apply to? Only those who love Him. It only applies to believers. If someone is not a believer, they can't claim this promise from God. It only applies to believers. And in the very last part of this verse, who have been called according to His purpose, I'm actually going to leave that part of the verse for Pastor Dave to tackle next week. Um, I'm going to say that we're doing that because it ties in more with what's coming up in the passage than what we've already talked about. But part of me, too, is passing that on down to him because that can be a controversial topic. So we're going to let him him wrestle with that next week. So <laughs> Our last takeaway, number five, in all things, God works for the good of believers. Would you say that one with me? In all things. God works for the good of believers. God is even using the tough times we go through for our good. Now, let's recap the takeaways that we've covered today. Takeaway number one, the suffering we experience on earth pales in comparison to the glory we will experience in heaven. Takeaway number two, in God's original design for the world, there was no suffering. Takeaway number three, 
the era of suffering that we are currently in won't last forever. Takeaway number four, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and knows exactly what to pray in accordance with God's will. And lastly, takeaway number five, in all things, God works for the good of believers. Now let me close with this. As I've been working on this message this last week, I realized that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about heaven. I'm aware of what it is. And I know that the Bible says, because of my faith, I will spend all of eternity there with God. I know quite a bit about heaven. I just don't spend a lot of time actually thinking about it. I want to change that. I want to be more heaven-minded, if you will. I want to continue enjoying and appreciating the life God has provided for me here, but I also want to spend more time looking forward to that future time when God calls me home to heaven and I get to go there. Maybe some of you feel the same way. It's kind of like planning for a trip or a vacation. The actual vacation is great. But some of the enjoyment occurs in the weeks and months leading up to the vacation as you anticipate what you will be doing. Now, please stop thinking about your vacations and focus back here as I wrap this up. Let's all be more heaven-minded. I really think it would be good for our souls. There is coming a day when we will transition from groaning to glory. There is coming a day when we will be given new bodies and will never suffer from pain or physical ailment again. There is coming a day when we will receive our full inheritance as children of God and will spend all of eternity in heaven. There is coming a day when we will never mourn the loss of a loved one again and we'll be able to say hello again to those loved ones that we've lost, that died in the faith. There is coming a day when suffering of any kind will be totally eliminated. There is coming a day when creation will be restored to its original splendor. There is coming a day when we will no longer witness horrific, senseless, random acts of murder. And there is coming a day when we will no longer be exposed to the absolute and total nonsense we see all around us. And we will never again see demonic activity on display as people with depraved minds that are no longer able to discern between right and wrong try to justify the killing of unborn babies all in the name of choice. God help us. God help us. What more evidence do we need that we live in a fallen world that's been poisoned by sin? Let me end on this positive note. There is coming a day 
when all things will be made right. This day is coming, and what a day that will be. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we're thankful to you for the comfort that you provide for us in your word of knowing that when we're going through these difficult times in life down here, that you are there, Holy Spirit, you are interceding on our behalf, even when we're not even aware of it. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the hope that this life here is not the end. It's not the last chapter. We thank you that you have provided a place for us, a glorious, perfect place that for those who believe in you and the work that your Son did on the cross will one day experience where we will see you, Jesus, face to face. And we will live in a time that is nothing but glorious. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray. Amen.